Labor Day weekend, had a lot of conversations with you over the last year about, hey, what does it look like for the children in my home to come to believe Jesus? And I think they might be, and how do I know? And I don't think they are, and what do I do? That question has been on the minds of many people in the life of this church. And so before jumping into a whole new series next Sunday, we wanted to address this question with you today. Whether you are a grandparent or a parent or not a parent at all, married, not married, this is a question that is an important one for you to begin to get in your soul if you're going to love our church and if the Lord should bless you with children and sons and daughters of your own. I'm totally preaching to you from weakness this morning and not from some place of great strength. I am not an expert who is about to invite you into all the right answers to this question. Experts are overrated anyway, like we live in that age of the expert and the talking head. There are times when you want an expert dealing with you, when the melanoma was removed from the top of my head, I asked a lot of questions about the surgeon because I wanted an expert messing with the one-eighth of an inch of skin that I had up on here. If your pipes burst in your house, you prefer an expert plumber to come by. True? You don't want someone looking up at the ceiling and saying, you know, I think it's the, the pipe there that connects to the pipe there. You want him to say, I know exactly what this is. I do not stand before you in that capacity at all today. Part of it is because I'm such a, a sinner, and the Lord works interestingly in giving children sinners as parents to lead them to him. It's just how he does it. We have a 17-year-old, 15-year-old, 13-year-old now, and 9-year-old, and we don't know what we're doing. We're trying but we're not experts. The truth is that there are no parenting experts. I know they sell you their books and their DVD sets, but they're lying to you. They're making money off of you, but they're just faking it. Nobody is an expert at parenting because this is not something where you can just study it and go apply it. These are wills, individual souls that are in our care. So I'm not preaching to you as one who has all the answers today. I'm preaching to you as one who gets to take you to the scriptures and saying to you, here are some beautiful answers. What I do bring to you today is the resolve to go after this with you. We are in on seeing if we can lead our four children to love Jesus, and we are in with you on seeing you lead yours and I am praying that the Lord will double the size of this church, which would mean to double the number of children in this church. And I am all in on seeing all of them moving toward Jesus. There are these seasons in your life when this question becomes very real to you. Obviously, one of them is when you have children. Our oldest was born August 7th, 2000. And I just remember being in our apartment at the time and realizing, okay, who are we going to be as a family? It's not just Grace and I anymore. There's a whole new life dependent upon my leadership here. Who are we going to be? 
are we going to resolve to love the Lord together? There's another pronounced season of this in my life, and that was when we were naming our church. So this is a newish church when we were figuring out what to name it. Somehow, I got connected with the worst church planting coach in church planting history. He was like the Bobby Valentine of church planting coaches. It was not the pastor from Forestdale who planted us. He was a wonderful mentor and friend. It was some other guy from the outside. We actually paid him some money to coach me. You know, reverse day, what do they call that? Backwards day? That's how I should have approached this relationship. Whatever this guy said to do, do the opposite. Opposite day. And things would have worked out beautifully. When we were getting ready to name the church, he said, don't just name it church. Don't just name it community church. Don't call it Christian center. Call it family church. That's the hot new trend. That's the hip new name. And it sends a message that this church is going to be centered on families. And then you'll be able to have a viable base with which to plan from. We said no. Absolutely not. That we were not going for a church that was centered on families. We were looking to call families to be centered on the church. Huge difference. Not a church that is built to meet the needs and the preferences of nuclear families, but families who would say, we are here to center our lives on Jesus and his gospel and therefore his church and his mission. So that's why this is not called family church. It's just called church. Many of you have thrown yourself into this with us. So I mean, it's small today. I can drop some names, but we have lots of families who have said we're in on the mission of God through the life of this church. Do you know that the Robinsons make multiple stops on their way to church every Sunday to pick people up who would not otherwise be at church? How many people would be willing to do that? It has never crossed my mind in 12 years of knowing these guys. I wonder what's really important to this family. I wonder what stirs their heart. You know that Josh and Allison live in Melrose and would actually prefer not to. They're Portsmouth, New Hampshire people. Lord willing, one day we will plant the seven-mile road up in Portsmouth and they'll be a part of that team. But the Lord placed them in Melrose and it would not have been in the top, you know, 50 of type of cities that they would have thought they would be living in. But they have thrown themselves into the mission of this church and the love of their neighbors. It has never crossed my mind to go, I wonder what's really important to Josh and Allison. You know that Rob and Patty and their kids got back from a 10-day, two-week vacation with all their college friends. It was like two-thirds of Rob's graduating class and their children at this beach house. They got back on a Friday, and they opened their home on a Saturday, less than 24 hours later, to host 25 people who were coming to serve our church, and they did it together as a family. It has never crossed my mind to say, 
I wonder what's most important to the Roselle. You know that we helped the Previtts move into their new apartment over here on Main Street in Melrose? And I could talk about them, right, moving into a small apartment, very expensive, so that they might help us build this church and advance the mission. And little Jackson needed to be watched by somebody. So do you know who watched them the whole day while we were moving them? Mara with Elias and Ada and her baby Keller, all four of them in her arms that day. It has not occurred to me since I met the Bleeker family, I wonder what this family really cares about. I could literally keep going and that could be the sermon, but I need you to feel that. We are not planting a church that is centered on keeping your family happy or meeting your family's felt needs. We are planting a church where we are saying, how about if your family threw yourself fully behind the mission of God with us? And as we do that, does Jesus meet our children in that fray? That's what we're going to talk about together. All right, if you have not noticed, you will very quickly. We love children at Seven Mile Road. This is not a sentimental thing. It is a theological thing and a missiological thing. So let me hit these quickly before we hit the Bible together. Theological. Here's why we love children. God loves children. You cannot miss this from the beginning to the end of scriptures. Think of it with me. So it begins in creation. And what is the Lord's command to the husband and the wife, the first of the human race? One of his commands to them is, be fruitful and multiply. You know when your grandmother got on your case and was like, when are you going to have a baby? When are you going to have a baby? Come on, when are you going to have a baby? That's not just annoying grandma stuff. That is a holy question. In the beginning, God commanded the husband and wife to be fruitful, to fill the earth with sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters. They fall into sin in the garden, and the Lord's promise of gospel is wrapped around a child, the birth of the son. He promises the mom that one of her sons will crush the head of the dragon. And immediately we are looking generationally for the redemption of God. All the promises in the older covenant include the children of those who have believed. Generations is the word that you'll see in their Bible. For example, when the Lord appears to Moses and he covenants with people, For the first time with his people, he reveals himself to Moses, he reveals his name to Moses, and he says, I am a God who keeps covenant, steadfast love, faithfulness for a thousand generations toward those who fear me and keep my commandments. The Lord intending from his first covenanting with his people to see that jump and jump and jump. All the festivals in the Older Covenant were family affairs. They would march up to Jerusalem with the kids in tow. They would even sing on the way. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Beautiful things are intended for our children. The book of Proverbs is written to sons and by extension, daughters. There's dads writing and there's moms writing in the book of Proverbs to their children. 
that they might fear the Lord and serve Him. Then we get to the Christmas story, and it's all about who? It's all about the babies. All about the babies. Elizabeth is having her shame removed. Finally, she is with child. Mary is being invited into the awfulness of receiving shame. A single mother, an unwed mother, pregnant with Jesus. But the whole story is about these babies. We have that beautiful scene when Mary hustles to hide and go spend some time with her friend, uh, cousin Elizabeth, as her baby grows. And John in utero leaps because Jesus in utero came into the room. And you can't help but see that God has written into the story of redemption the glory of children. Then we see the ministry of Jesus, and he is the one who loved children. Let the children come to me. Do you know this story? Jesus is preaching and teaching, and there's crowds of little kids and nursing mothers bringing their infants to him that he might bless them. And the disciple, Gestapo, step in and say, hey, hey, no kids. We got big people, business going on here. Keep the kids away. And Jesus issues a stern warning, and he says, don't you dare. Let the children come to me. Then he issues one of the most sternest warnings that he has in the Gospels where he says, in fact, if anyone would cause a child, a little one, to stumble into sin, you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and roll it into the lake. This is the heart of God for the defense of and the nurture of children. And of course, in Peter's first sermon, the first time the gospel is preached, what does he say? He declares the gospel promise and he says, this promise is for you and your children. Does everybody feel this? We don't love kids at Seven Mile Road because they're cute and we like to take pictures. We love children because God loves children. It's a theological commitment. We'd love for you to share this with us. It's also not just theological, it is missiological. Do you know what I mean by that phrase? Every church has to say, who are we sent to and how do we love them really well together? We are sent to a city, a region, a state, country that despises children, despises them. And so we as missionaries get to say, not us, we're going to love and receive them. You know the ways that we despise children in our culture, they're hard to even put words to, but in these United States of America, abortion is legal, meaning fathers and mothers can conceive children and can kill those children, sons or daughters, fully viable in the womb. The Supreme Court of this nation and state legislatures throughout are okay with the taking of life of children. Our excuses for this are breathtaking. I listened to this lady professor at Princeton University talk about, well, a child's not viable until the mother decides that he is. So see, you didn't get aborted, so you really were a person, but the kids that did didn't get to personhood yet because it was on the mom and the dad to decide. You play that logic forward a little bit and tell me what you think about it. Hatred of children. So we don't even receive them. Millions of children are put away 
before we can get them in our hand. We also minimize the number of children that we would have as few as possible. On my block, there's two children, two children, zero children, one child, zero children, two children. That's seven homes, seven couples, 14 adults, but only seven children. Massachusetts has the second lowest birth rate in the 50 states of America. Rhode Island is first. When I read that, you know what my first thought was? If I lived in Rhode Island, I'd be too depressed to have sex too. And then I said, oh no, that means that 48 other states are saying the same thing about Massachusetts. Second lowest birth rate in our state, and you know the numbers of Western Europe and America, right? Think about what you love and value. What do you do with what you love and you value? You collect a lot of them, don't you? My dad loves cars. You know that? How many cars does he have in his driveway right now? One, two, three, four, five. Five of them. He got rid of one. Because what you love, you want a bunch of. What do we love in Boston? Well, what do we have a lot of? We love dogs. We love TVs. We got one in every room. We love our vacations, right? Bucket list. But what about children? Just my block. 14 adults, 7 children. It's a sign of a culture that does not actually love children. And then the last thing that we do is if we have them, we have them. And it's less about the glory of God and the raising of future sons and daughters for the common good. And it's more of accessories for our lives. So I'm not a big accessory person. I have one. It's that ring right there. But there's no bracelets and necklaces and earrings and whatever else you would have. But what does an accessory do? An accessory makes much of the person who accessorizes by them. So we accessorize so that we might be more comfortable, or we might look better, or we might enhance our reputation, or we might perform better. This is how we think about children in our culture. They are a means to the end of me self-actualizing. I had this preferred life, and it included some children. So let me add them to what I've been doing. None of those is the vision of God for children in our lives. And you know, I say these things directly, and then we can work through them in individual situations. But at the height, we add kids because we're trying to build something for ourselves, and they fit that over there. Into a culture like that, there needs to be churches that say, no, we will take your unwanted children. If the Lord blesses us, we're happy to have children. When we receive them, we're not going to marginalize them from our lives. We're going to invite them into the pursuit of Jesus with us. It is a beautiful witness to be holding babies in a church service. The closest that I've come to punching someone in the throat at the end of a Sunday service was when someone told me they wouldn't be back. There's too many kids. I held back. That's not the heart of God. I'm not saying this in pride. I'm saying this 
because of what's been revealed in Scripture? What if we loved kids together? All right, you have thrown yourself into this with us, right, in multiple possible ways. Some of you have wanted to have children and have not been able to. Some of you have adopted children. Some of you are preparing to foster children. A bunch of you have had children. Our church started, there was one child. <laughs> it was our son. He was eight months old. You know what the nursery was? It was the hallway <laughs> outside the back doors of the church. It was dusty as all get out, and that was our nursery. We now have over 70 children under 18 in the life of this small church. You have thrown yourself into it with us. When you do that, a huge, huge question arises. What do we do with all these kids? What do we do with them? And I don't mean where do we put them. I mean, what do we do with their souls? If you're a parent, you remember the first day that you brought your first child home, right? So they were so little when they were born, and then they lose weight right away. You know this? Then you got to put them in this car seat. You should have seen me with the car seat with my, with my little six-and-a-half-pound baby boy. I pulled those straps tight on this kid. I put that in the car and pulled those straps super tight. I got behind the wheel like Abraham Simpson. I was like three miles an hour from Melrose over to River. Hey, hey, hey! Watch it. What do you do when you receive children? You, immediately you realize there's something bigger that I've been invited into. Does the Bible have anything to say to us about the souls of our children? About seeing them jump as generational followers of Jesus with us? So the answer is yes, and all we're going to do is look at the two verses that Patty had read to us before. And hopefully you see some beautifully helpful things. And at the end you say, I'm in. Let's do this together. At the back of your Bible is a letter called 2 Timothy. It's the second letter that Jesus' Apostle Paul had written to a young protege, a son of his in the faith, named Timothy. Paul is about to die for the sake of Jesus. He's in a prison cell and he knows he's not getting out. And Timothy's faith was so rugged and so strong one of the people that Paul writes to is to Timothy because he had been such an encouragement to him. And here's the words that he writes to him. He says this first, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt First in your grandmother, Lois, then in your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. All right, love the words of your Bible. Let's pull some of those words out together. Here's the first one that jumped out at me, sincere faith. This is what we are going for with you, and this is what we are going for with our children. Not... Where's the list of religions? Let me find Christian and I'll check that box. Not good kids. Not button-down kids. Not kids that can pass a Bible examination. We're looking for kids who have come to a sincere faith. The word sincere means deep down. Unhypocritical is how it sounds in the Greek. That's what it sounds like. No pretense in here. Legit cut me open, and the blood that bleeds loves Jesus. That was the faith that Timothy had. 
That's the faith that we want in our church. Then he shows us how it got there, and he says it like this. It started in your grandmother, and then it jumped to your mother, and now it's all on and in you. Now, we don't know the details of who and how they heard about Jesus. The grandmother and the mother and the boy were probably all alive at the same time and closer in age than we would be used to in the way that in the stretch of time that we have between our kids and American culture. Very likely the grandmother had heard the gospel and because she loved and feared the Lord when she heard that the Messiah had come, she was in. The mother was probably in that same synagogue with her mom, the grandmother, loving the Lord, serving the Lord. And when she was told about Jesus, she was in. And grandma and mom invested in the life of the synagogue and then in whatever church would have been birthed from it, began to lead church kid Timothy to Jesus. The Lord loves to do this. My mother's father, he was a pastor in a Puerto Rican Assemblies of God context. Bartolomeo Oliver, that was his name. You know what his job was? He was the guy who spoke Spanish and so could disciple people in the States who didn't speak English to follow Jesus. So they tapped him on the shoulder and said, Bartolomeo, we need you to leave Puerto Rico and take your family to Brooklyn because there's Jesus' people there who need to be discipled. Do you know what he did? He lifted his family up and he moved into the hood in Brooklyn. Then they said to him, hey, there's Puerto Ricans in Ohio. They don't have a pastor. We need you to go out there and make disciples. You know what he did? He picked his family up from Brooklyn, New York, and moved them to Ohio to disciple people out there. Now, no offense to the Hamiltons and the Ericsons, but would you rather live in New York City or Ohio? <laughs> Never have I had to ask the question, I wonder what was most important to my grandfather. That faith, that sincere faith, jumped to my mom. So 1984, we were living in New York City, right? She got back to New York from Brooklyn, married a hippie from Flushing. They were devoted to Jesus. A friend of theirs called them up and said, hey, we're leading this church in Revere, Massachusetts, and we need some people to come help us to do this. Would you be interested in coming see the gospel advance? 1984, in the spring, they picked up their family and moved us from New York to Revere, Massachusetts. Who does that? It's someone who is all in on Jesus and his gospel and his mission. And now that sincere faith, by God's grace, has jumped to myself and my brother. See how that flows? Now, this is not some foolproof system that I'm giving you, but I am inviting you into the way that God works from generation to generation to generation. If I gave up the head mic, many of you could come tell stories just like that. The Father loves to do this. All right, here's our last question. How does that happen? Can you help us with any means of seeing what this looks like? Yes. In the second text that Patty read, we see how this worked. Here we go. 
continue, speaking to Timothy now, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pull out some key words and I'll put some key phrases up on the screen. Here's the first one. This boy, this church kid, was immersed in the gospel from childhood. From childhood, you were acquainted with the sacred writings which led you to Jesus. Everybody feel this? Grandma and mom opened the Bible with Timothy. They brought him to the beauty and the goodness and the truth of the story of God. And those stories, those words, those doctrines got deep down in this boy's soul and that soil was ready for the planting of the seed of the gospel to explode. It's no wonder that the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones from Redeemer in Manhattan, has blown through the million copies sold tally because this is one of the ways that the Lord sweeps the next generation into his kingdom. How about you open the Bible with your kids and point them to Jesus? That's all she did with that book. She also got this artist that can seriously draw with this cool liney art. So the kids love the pictures, but they're also hearing about Jesus and hearing about Jesus. This is the pursuit of every Christian family ever to lead their kids to Jesus through what God has told them to be true about him. From childhood, this church kid was acquainted with the gospel, and so as he grew, he was able to believe. Second thing, it says that he had, there was great integrity of life in his teachers. Did you see that? It's fascinating. One of Paul's apologetics for why Timothy should continue to believe the gospel is, you know who you learned it from. You know the character of those who taught you Jesus, and that should be a reason that you continue to follow Jesus. One of the main reasons the church loses the next generation is because we personally have no fervor for God, no holiness in our lives. And your kids know it, right? If you're bored with the gospel, they will smell that thing from a mile away. If you're just giving them words, but you never pray, you never read your Bible, you never forgive anyone, you never believe God for anything, they'll know, they'll know, they're just talking. They don't really mean it. But the opposite is true as well. If you live before your children humbly and on fire for God and serious about his word and his grace, they'll know. They'll know. One of the most heartbreaking stories in the early years of planting our church is we had this couple, and the dad was there, but he wasn't there. You know how that works? And I saw his children six months ago, and they are not following the Lord at all, and it was no surprise to me. They knew dad was faking it. Why would they get excited about Jesus if dad wasn't actually committed to this? 
one of the reasons it never crossed my mind to do pastoral ministry was because of the pastor that I lived with in my early years in the faith. He was such a horrible example of personal holiness and humility that it never crossed my mind to want to be a pastor. And it was only until the Lord brought us to a church in Malden where I saw a different exemplar of gospel ministry that it opened in my heart, whoa, this looks like a life of joy and beauty and goodness. It's the same invitation for you and me as adults. Will we live before the next generation as hypocrites, tepid in our faith, or we will live before them in such a way that they would say they were sinners, but they believed Jesus, and they followed him, and I want what they had. That's what Timothy had. That's what Timothy had. And then the last one is this. He moved from learned to owned. He moved from learned it to owned it. These few words are probably the most powerful to me as a dad in all of the scriptures when he says, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe.